Hello and welcome to the Uncapped Podcast, proudly presented by Roast House Pub, where elevated culinary creations meet a fresh, evolving craft beer selection, making it one of Frederick's unique dining destinations. Hey everyone, I'm your host Chris Sands, and today I'm out in Baltimore, Maryland, although I guess it isn't technically Baltimore, is it? Or is it? It's right there on the edge. We're still Baltimore, yeah. Okay, we'll call it Baltimore then, because I think that's what everyone identifies Duclaw as being. Um, So yes, I'm at Duclaw Brewing Company with owner and founder Dan Benfield, and um, she rattled off a lot of title information (laughs) before we started. Uh, Madeline Caldwell, she used to be the director of marketing here, and now she works for 212 Communications and provides marketing support in, to uh, Duclaw. So thank you, too. Thanks for having us. Yep, thanks. So you guys are fairly new. Uh, you've only been around for 25 years. <laughs> yep. Um, I would say in like craft beer terms, that kind of makes you like a great-grandfather, right? Kind of feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So when uh like what were you doing that made you want to start a brewery? Cuz that's not exactly like now I think like someone says I want to open a brewery, it's kind of like just saying I I want to do XYZ. It's just right. a normal thing for someone to want to do. 25 years ago, that wasn't exactly a common uh aspiration no it was difficult um it started i went to um college at loyola in baltimore and in our junior year one of the roommates brought back a homebrew kit and the the thing that intrigued us at the time was for you could create two cases of beer for about ten dollars and our drink of choice at that time was bush light so that was 9.99 a case so we were getting double the beer for the same price um and as starving college students that it was a great thing for us. So we did that uh, through junior year, and then by senior year, um, Loyola doesn't really have dorm rooms for the upperclassmen. So um, we were in what's called garden, kind of garden apartments, and we were on the first floor. We'd leave our windows open in the springtime. And if you were a friend of ours, you would drop off a six-pack of empty bottles, and we would fill them for you, and then people would just walk up kind of to our window and take them on their Saturday morning before they would go out about their business. And so that became so busy for us that uh, we were we had like three different homebrew kits and we were just going to town. And uh, so you had effectively opened a brewery already. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then so as you went to graduate, it was like, hey, I think this is something we could do. We put it in you know an area where people can come into your shop and drink beer. No one's ever done that before, but craft brewing kind of really resurged in like 86 88 and um there were plenty of people doing it just not on the east coast as much and uh then i spent two or four years kind of working on it and graduated in 92 and then we opened in 96 and it was tough because the laws didn't allow you to do what you do today Uh, you can't have you couldn't have tap rooms back then at least in maryland so if you wanted to serve directly to the public, you had to be a restaurant. And 50% of your food sa- of your sales had to be food. Now, though, I had read that while you also wanted to save money, it was to meet women. <laughs> so yeah. I was wondering, how effective was the second part of your ambition? Uh, well, it, it, it helped. Uh, but uh, no, we, um, it was mainly for money. So... <laughs> 
So I'd say it is head girlfriends at the time. So you weren't you weren't gathering them. So we should have charged though. Is what we should have done. We could have made a lot more money and probably ended up in jail. Yep, <laughs> probably. <laughs> so you may have went the the better route of yeah. not charging, yep. or quite possibly you would not have been allowed to start Duclos. Yeah, we were always in trouble back then. So. <laughs> So how how long was it after you graduated that you decided that Duclaw was something you wanted to do? Uh, well, I was actually working on it before I even graduated, but it took forever. So it took four years to find a location, uh, research all the equipment, um, decide like all the parameters, just like renting a space, liquor license, state license, federal license. Uh, you got to remember back in uh, 92, 93, 94, there really wasn't the internet. Um, I think it was in 96, 97 is when dial up to internet even became kind of available. So research was done by making phone calls, uh, traveling, um, knowing people, networking that way. So it just took forever. Because not nearly as many options as now, too. We opened up with the JV Northwest system, brew house, and it was what's called direct fire. So it's like a pot on your stove. And just even figuring out who the manufacturers for our size, and there weren't many, um, how that works, um, all the technical aspects that, you know, nowadays you just can find in five minutes with an internet search. It just took months and travel. So you'd fly out there to look at it because you had no other way to look at it. Like there wasn't, I'll just text you a picture. Yeah. You, you had to go see it in person. And even if someone did happen to have a camera phone, then you wouldn't have been able to see anything yeah. anyway. No, yeah, no. <laughs> it would have been like a, a one inch square. Um, so when you first opened, what was the format? Because you didn't go straight to, it was just brew pubs at that time, right? Yeah, so we were technically, legally, we were called a brew pub, but we were basically, in reality, you were a restaurant that had a brewery inside of it. Okay. Um, so we opened with five beers on tap as mainstays. We did name most of them, but even back then, a lot of times the brewery would have been, this is Brewery XYZ Porter. Uh, but we opened with a porter called Bad Moon Porter. Kind of always felt that you needed to have some type of imagery and connection and, and it kind of invoke things inside the mind. Um, plus, we knew we had to, you know, like even a porter back then, people were used to drinking Bud, Coors, or Miller. And so you might have had Guinness Stout, but they even classified it as, oh, that's really high alcohol, even though it's 3-2. Um so convincing them to drink these things and understanding the differences in style was was massive. And we we elected to open with um, the macro beers available, but through bottle, not through draft, um, because we figured we had to really convince people to change. And if you didn't have the beer they wanted, they're not coming in, period. Yeah, that's always the like the places that have been around for a long time. Um talked about is like the biggest struggles was just that education standpoint because you were serving something that a tiny fraction of the population had ever tried before yeah it was and actually regular beer one of our beers we have on now is really inspired by that time frame where people are like why don't you just make beer that tastes like beer and um it it was it was extremely challenging uh to get them to try it so and the price because they wanted to pay 
you know, why if I get my bud and it's this cheap, why do I want to pay for this? And you're like, it's better flavor. What um what types of beer were you brewing at uh, Loyola Beer Company? So we uh, we were on what's called malt extract. So our brewery where we do all of our extraction by grain, you would just buy pre-made malt extract. So it was uh, pale ales and specifically English pale ales was the most widely available. You're ordering out of a catalog. So they did have ambers and they did have pale ales. Um, and then by senior year, we were starting to do some of our own grain stuff. Um, but we had we, we did everything along that lines, either a, uh, not a very hoppy um, product because, uh, again, it was all built into the, the extract. So you're not putting any, and they didn't really have any elaborate hops like we do now. Um, so it was all multi ambers and ales, okay. English ales. Um, yeah, I had a very short stint in home brewing. Um, and then I decided that the cost benefits far were far exceeded by the ease of just letting a professional do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you didn't have like the things you can remember is Sierra Nevada paleo was out of that time. Pete's wicked Brown was very large at that time. Sam Adams was still relatively small, but for what they are now at least. So it wasn't like you had a lot of options. So if you wanted to get to the other things, that's the way you had, um, you'd go to your typical liquor store and maybe you'd find Pete's. Yeah. I didn't, I think 2000 and, eight maybe was the first time mm-hmm. i ever homebrewed oh. so it was there was still wasn't nearly the selection there is now but there was there's plenty of selection and i was like ah, eh, it's just easier to go to a store and buy it yeah that's I mean, it's still the good thing here so i'm not brewing so yeah. you just go right down there and grab it so <laughs> yeah <laughs> so when you opened duclaw were you doing the brewing or did you hire someone that was the original plan uh, I was 26 when we opened, so in my my mind was I would do the brewing. I hired a general manager for the restaurant and a chef, but very quickly I got introduced to the uh, restaurant industry, and with about two months after opening, fired the general manager. About four months after opening, fired the, maybe five months after opening, let the chef go, and so you ended up having to run the restaurant and. and not have rely on someone else so then i hired brewers after that had you ever worked in restaurants or anything before opening no, one oh, no, cool. so no. you you the went typical, in. typical 25 year old <laughs> was like i can do this so it's so it's actually kind of amazing that you had so much success early on yeah it's uh it was just a lot of willpower yeah. um and in 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 essence too it was a little easier back then because there wasn't as much competition um so even in the town where i opened up which is bel air maryland which is about 25 minutes away from the brewery um you had a little bit more protection just because you just weren't inundated like we are today uh, you didn't have panera you didn't have chipotle you didn't have those things that just take customers away and i guess too back then duclaw had very comparatively in your face uh distinguish distinguishable branding yeah we were have always been edgy uh, so our one of the beers we opened up with which was a beer called uh, bare ass blonde ale and at the time it caused a major ruckus even though 
when how that name came about was I was sampling homebrews that I had made that we were going to have at the restaurant and was explaining to my friends a porter and the color and so on and they were, they were talking about each color and it's like oh that's the color of somebody's ass and they're like you should and it's a blonde ale and like, you should call it bare ass blonde and it was kind of a dare so stupidly enough we did it and uh <laughs> you know the logo was a, a baby cherub like a cupid yeah. And because uh, we weren't trying to be just completely, I guess, out there, but it caused a ruckus like crazy. But then everyone came in to see what this was all about. And then so we learned pretty, pretty early on that, you know, you got to get attention and there's ways if you're willing to do it that you can and, and to be clever because it catches and, and burns into people's minds. So were, were people equating the name as being misogynistic, yes. e- even though the imagery was... Yes, the okay. local paper actually wrote an article about how I was a caveman and my must-have bruises or scrapes on my knuckles because they drag on the ground. What year was this? Uh, 96. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, man, they must have really been clutching the pearls when Flying Dog moved to Maryland. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, we've, it's just how it is. And we've learned and you just keep going and you know you're always going to get somebody aggravated. But we kind of always had a saying is either you want us to love us or hate us. Being in between is just no good. So evoke passion one way or another. Yeah, because I've never like uh, when you when you started to say that, like I was trying to run back through my mind all the different brands that I remember of Duclaw having, and none of them were really. I couldn't think of anything that like crossed the line into offensive or not directly. I mean, people were they're upset about Sweet Baby Jesus. Oh, um, that was my next one. Did yeah. people consider that to be, uh, I guess, blasphemous? To... Some did. Uh, mainly, uh, it was weirdly enough, is the biggest ruckus came in Ohio uh, when we brought that brand there, um, and people took it as we were trying to poke fun rather than this was a phrase that I was used to with my grandmother. It was from basically they originate from Georgia, so it's a southern, at least from her, was a southern phrase of, oh my God. Um, and when we created the beer, we had a different name, and then uh, one of the brewers was like, as we were talking about, it said, sweet baby Jesus, we were able to get peanut butter and beer, and that kind of just connected. And we were about three weeks, four weeks from launch, and we changed everything and launched that way. I bet everyone loved when you decided to do that. Uh, yes. And <laughs> and luckily or bizarrely enough, we packaged that beer December 24th. So it just how that first time it came out literally was right before it. And, and it took off. Um, well, let's say um, I think it's a good uh, spot. We'll take a real quick sponsor break because I think uh, there's probably a lot to talk about with Sweet Baby Jesus because I think that was a a giant piece of Duclaw mm-hmm. history, right? Yep. All right, so uh, we'll take a real quick sponsor break, and when we come back, we'll have a little more Jesus talk. Okay. <laughs> Uncapped is brought to you by one of Frederick's original Maryland craft beer destinations, located off of Urbana Pike, featuring a warm, inviting atmosphere and knowledgeable staff serving up fresh, locally sourced culinary creations and unique craft beers on tap. Open seven days a week, our friends at Roast House Pub invite you to enjoy a casual lunch, happy hour specials, delicious dinners, and specialty desserts. Follow them on social media to keep up to date on their monthly beer dinners, on spaghetti dinner battles, and what beer is being featured for Buck Above Monday. Idiom Brewing Company proudly offers a delicious variety of beers to satisfy the most discerning tastes. Best known for their wide array of IPAs, delicious fruited sours, and robust porters and stouts. 
Idiom has a simple goal in mind, to bring people from all walks of life together, to enjoy themselves and each other. Whether you're a hophead looking for explosively juicy IPAs, or one of the adventurous few looking to try boozy, sour, or complex flavors, or just looking to enjoy classic styles and seasonal favorites, they'll have a little something for you. Idiom Brewing Company is located in downtown Frederick, just south of the intersection of East Street and East Patrick Street, with ample seating directly on Carroll Creek. So what year did Sweet Baby Jesus come out? Uh, so it was packaged in uh, 2012, right right at the end of 2012. No, I'm sorry, 2011. I take that back. And I, I think at the, at the time, that was a very, very different beer. Like I, and it, I mean, that's probably part of the reason why it took off so much. It, do you, like a combination of that probably. And I think the name also yeah, but that helps controversy wise, but also people hearing the name thinking like, now I need to try that. Yeah, we, um, so that came about as we had a homebrew contest we would run pretty much every year called hero. Um, and, uh, we'd went out and it was the first year we had done it and we got a decent bit of entries and you're looking for something different. And two homebrewers brought in, where they had done a, a, a chocolate peanut porter. And we liked the concept, like how it worked, kind of brought that out as hero. And then we kind of took that and said, okay, how do we make it better? How do we work onto that and, and change that around? And um, as we went through it, for us, it was, okay, we'll put the seasonal out. And then we came up with the name Sweet Baby and it kind of took off on its own. Um, and that happens a lot for us. And a lot of times you make a beer, we don't know how well it's really going to sell or how strong it's going to be. And so uh, that beer kind of just took us off guard and it then catapulted. Very soon after that, we were in our, our brewery up in Bel Air area um, and the volume of that just went crazy uh, for bottled product. And it really kind of pushed us into this brewery and pushed us into all the states. So... What happened for us was is, as soon as it got out there, other distributors in Pennsylvania, then in Virginia, and then from PA, it rolled into Ohio and, and down south um, because it was a different offering. Still is, even to this day. Um, uh, you know, Obviously, it's a IPA-dominated industry, but we kind of enjoy that little section of the porters, which nowhere near as big, but we, we get a lot of attention just simply because no one else offers as much as as we do in that kind of area for the most part does it still sell well mm -hmm. it's about 35 percent of our sales still oh, wow. is there yeah. and it's back in bottles um so the biggest thing that happened with covid was there was a massive can shortage so we had it in cans for like four months before just converted over to cans we had to convert back to bottles can sell a lot better um, and it also, almost all of our offerings are in cans and then these other in bottles. So in liquor stores, they're in different spots. Yeah. So, but it's still that much, man. Is it still selling as well as at its peak or uh, has it's gone? No, yeah. It's, um, so it, every kind of beer that you have has that takeoff period yeah. and just ramps up and then it kind of settles into a groove. Um, this, when it was at its peak, the amount that we sold when it's, 85 95 degrees outside i just couldn't understand like why would you want to drink this beer in this and it still sells well in that that time frame but definitely settled down so 
So I, in, in my mind, at least in thinking of the history of Maryland craft beer, there was that at that time, um, what was maybe a dozen breweries in Maryland. I, if that, if that, yeah. Um, cause I'm trying to think back to the precursor to the Maryland craft beer festival, the spring fest that was held at Harry Grove stadium in Frederick. Oh yeah. 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 Um, because I, I vividly remember leading up to the point of trying Colossus for the first time. <laughs> After that point, everything was kind of hazy. Yeah. Colossus um, at Springfest and the Brewers Oktoberfest in Timonium State Fairgrounds. Well, I think Springfest was like the first, like yep. it was advertised the first time it was ever being. Yeah. That was our first <clears throat> BAM, the fest. Yep. And um, so Duclaw always had like the big section up out of off of the field uh and then there was just like a few like yeah uh flying dog oliver's uh raven heavy seas brewer's art franklin Mm um i know i'm missing people but weren't weren't actually no it was clipper city then oh yeah it wasn't even heavy seas yet um so the the in my mind, at that point, there was like Duclaw was kind of peaking. Mm-hmm. Um, you had some of uh, the re-release stuff: Venom, Anti-Venom, oh, yeah. uh, Colossus. We already mentioned Sweet Baby Jesus came out and kind of like really took off. But I feel like then it kind of died off for a while. Yeah, and and, and I don't know if sales reflect that or not, but mm-hmm. in like the relevance of. Maryland craft beer, Duclaw kind of took a, a a downturn, especially in Mindshare. Yeah, we we so when we opened this brewery that we're in now, it was in uh, late 2012. So in 2013, 14 and 15, we were going gangbusters. Then around that 16, 2016, 2017, you had a couple things occur, and kind of some every brewery that's growing goes through it because we rely on distributors. And um, even though we've always been a company, even in our restaurant days where we're always releasing new beers, distributors like to build a brand and focus on a few brands. There's always this push from them to focus on a few brands. And even if you brought a seasonal out, they didn't care until it really took off. At the same time, you had a ton of tap rooms opening up, a ton of smaller breweries opening up, kind of continuing that. And then you all of a sudden were perceived as large and you, you do these chocolate porters even though we've barely advertised sweet baby even in its time we were doing a lot of other brands that's what got mind share and then after a while a year or two of having that out it just starts to feel old and distributors hadn't seen this change in our industry so we're you're pushing them but they're pushing back and saying i don't care if you bring this brand out i don't want it i only want these that i know will sell um and then it just took a while for that to occur uh, and kind of really kind of push through that. Uh, but, yeah, it, it did because I would we'd go to festivals and people are like, it's 90-some degrees out. We want Sweet Baby. Okay, well, I don't want to bring Sweet Baby. That's not what the customers want. They're yeah. going to want these things over here. So you That had does to not make sense. I'm not gonna- <laughs> Yeah. And then so um, – and every brewery, as you're growing um, and you're trying to put out more volume – and you're trying to get more brand awareness, you fight that because some brands you're known for. 
Flying Dogs, known for Raging Bitch. Heavy Seas, known for Loose Cannon. And you, uh, you, when you have all of a sudden this explosion of these other breweries opening up, on and now it feels almost like weekly, and new styles coming out, new hops coming out, and trying to keep that creativity while at the same time you want to get that volume up. And we were going through a transition. We were trying to get out of our restaurants and focus on the distribution because there's a lot of kinds of issues. And in 2015, the tap room laws changed where you can have tap rooms, but our tap room basically, as far as health department code, we'd have to completely renovate. So we were just always in this weird spot. Uh, one of the frustrations of being around for 25 years is all the legal changes that occur ever so slowly. Like I wouldn't have built this building this way if the laws were different five years ago, yeah. 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I wouldn't have opened up a full restaurant. I would have gone with a tap room. So. Was, um, was being larger and um, having a large distribution footprint and the popularity of Sweet Baby Jesus almost kind of like an anchor for being nimble? Well, so we, and even to this day, like we love bringing out the different beers, the challenge, and it took us a while to figure and kind of crack that code of how to convince distributors to go along with it. Cause they're your gateway. Like you have three customer layers. You have the distributor, the retailer, and then the consumer. We grew up always facing the consumer and, and it's just what we like. Um, and then as we got into distribution, we had to learn the other two. Um, and Finding the right partners is one. Um, also, they tend to want to follow volume. And yeah, because so, it's kind of like a battle almost, right? Mm-hmm. Where you, the people buying your beer are telling you, we want this, yes. we want this, we want this. And it almost can sometimes not allow you, once you become a certain size, to like, we see this happening. Right. We want to do this, but our tanks are fill, full with that filling up what the distributors want to buy or, from us yeah or the distributors just you'll say hey i want to put this brand out four months from now and they're like i, I just don't want it i don't want to try to go and, and convince people to drink it until all of a sudden it comes about so we kind of had to spend time and re-engineer how we launched beers convince distributors to bring it out um and then that's kind of where that change really came about at the same time it took them a while to really see the tap rooms that that People are going there buying a $24 four-pack, so price isn't the big deal. A lot of times yeah. if you brought a beer out and you're like, okay, this is going to be a $14 six-pack, they're like, that'll never sell. I just don't want any. It'll never sell. And, My, how things have changed. Yes. <laughs> and so now convincing them, even we went into 16-ounce cans, that took six months worth of saying people perceive this as a premium product. This is where good beer lies. This will sell. And they're like, no, they saw it as volume like where people buy 16 ounce cans because they want to drink a lot of beer and we just see it differently. So that running into that wall, it was like in quicksand. We couldn't go forward well. They wanted to only talk about Sweet Baby. We wanted to talk about anything else but Sweet Baby. <laughs> and uh, and then it felt like the world kind of passed you by into that. And then you ran into that to where you, if you didn't change, you just weren't going to be around. It just wasn't going to happen. I had always kind of assumed that the downturn was because you had Tyler Christ selling your beer. <laughs> and that was just always my assumption. So it's nice to hear uh, it wasn't his fault. No, it was not Ty's. <laughs> no. So, so as I described before, it was kind of like, 
Duclaw had lost mind share for a while, and then all of a sudden, something happened, and Duclaw was in everyone's face. Yeah. And it's kind of funny. It was a, it, and it maybe it's possible I have my timeline wrong, uh, but I feel like it was another singular beer that did that for you again. But I feel like it's had more staying power this time. Yeah. So am I right in saying that Unicorn Farts is kind of what brought Duclaw back to... I mean, there was a slow march yeah. with more modern-style offerings, but I feel like for the like the craft beer nerd or someone, that put Duclaw back into the spotlight so we went it, it kind of was that it was kind of like there was a lot of work to that all of a sudden overnight success again and what happened was a year or so before unicorn um we were working on a way because we saw sours really uh, taking off um and a lot of kind of like a blank canvas to do a lot with um and if you look at it you have a lot of fruited sours which were just like the fruited other beers, the IPAs or the wheat beers that came before. And, and we have a lot of experience in using those ingredients and putting them in beer. So we saw this, but we knew we had to build slowly and distributors weren't willing to do it. So we figured out ways and where we could launch uh, beers in small batches, especially for our size, and get them out there and grow it and work with certain distributors that were willing to do it and ignore the other distributors what that weren't. What do you weren't. consider a small batch? Well, for us, that would have been 20 barrels. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, And then we also... I think that's something a lot of people don't realize is like just how much beer Duclaw produces and sells. Yeah. <laughs> it, gets, it gets crazy when you look at it. Like even... Even as we go to brew batches, there'll be times where you just have a, what we would consider a little bit of leftover beer. And that little bit of leftover beer might be, you know, 30 or 40 kegs where you, just how it works out in the batch dynamics, you just don't have it. And then we will put it in our tap room, but there's only 20 of us, so we can only drink so much. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so we, we uh, were doing those batches and kind of working with distributors to bring it along, and it was really starting to gain steam. And then what another thing we always say is we put a lot of hard work in, but we put the hard work in to get in Luck's way. And then we went to do a collaboration meeting. Actually, I went with Mads to do a collaboration meeting with Diablo Donuts. And we were looking at some of their donuts to use as inspiration. And we were looking at a blackberry lime donut, which would have made a great sour. And then he was just happened to show us other donuts. And then you saw a unicorn fart donut. And it just caught the attention. And then it just painted the picture in my mind and that's where we started to work with and we went back and said okay it's fruity pebbles so our first challenge is what does fruity pebbles taste like like we know it tastes like fruity pebbles but what is that and then as we went through and tried to figure out the fruit combination there just as we tend to do in our group in the marketing side they're the ones that said well if we're going to put a beer out that has fart on the label you're going to have to own this so that's where they came up with the concept of edible glitter we had a ton of pushback from distributors. Even our local distributors said, we are not going to pick up a beer that has fart on it, won't sell. My sales team said, do not change it. So it was great. You had your team behind you. You went through it. We said, we're going to go about, and then it just took off. And then here's the flip side of that coin. It took off, which we thought this was a lark of a beer. We thought it was interesting, it was cool, it was different. No expectation on volume. 
And then, um, of course, you get hit on the other side is you guys are always doing these things just to get attention and so on and, and this, and you're like, you can't win. Um, but, uh, yeah, then it took off. And then the attention, not just locally, not even just the area we trade in, but even across the country. So we had distributors in California and, and uh, Colorado calling up to saying, how do we, how can we get this beer? And I think that because because you had taken the time to gain the trust and, you know, we're very consistent with distributors and releasing the sour, the patriarchy and the IPA every eight weeks, we sort of had that to, you know, it was like we could we could take some risks. Yeah. You know, yeah. we could do something crazy because they trusted that every eight weeks we were going to re- release these these three styles that sell. Yeah, it's a blend of creativity, organization, um, laying things out well enough. Because, again, going back to the three customers, we've always been customer-oriented, but now we have two other layers. You have a distributor who's different kind of needs and a retailer who is now really the crux to all your consumers, and they are the experts that um, those consumers go to, and they know the release. And so if you can get them, they say, hey, this is coming, and... And then we you, you take advantage of it when it comes. When you get lucky like that, you just yeah. take advantage of it and you roll. Well, let's take um, one more real quick sponsor break, and then we're going to dive fully into the world of unicorn farts. <laughs> oh, we will be right back. I buy my beer at District East in downtown Frederick, Maryland. They have an amazing selection of local and hard-to-find beers, and I love the option of making my own mix-and-match custom six-pack. District East is on Northeast Street in Frederick in the same shopping center as Showroom Restaurant and Rockwell Brewery. Most weeks they have over 950 beers in stock. Check out this week's selection at www.districteastbeer.com. To all you craft breweries, wineries, and distilleries out there, listen up. Atlantic Custom Solutions is the real deal in providing you branded growlers, ceramics, glassware, and accessories like koozies, coasters, and keychains. Their high-definition digital printing, organic ink, and low-fire process ensures your brand is printed in ultra-high definition, giving you a one-up on the competition. We've used Atlantic Custom Solutions for uncapped branded glassware and couldn't be happier with it. Check them out. Visit www.brandmybeverage.com or give them a call at 434-286-4500 to learn more about how they can help you brand your business. McClintock Distilling is Maryland's first and only certified organic distillery, handcrafting gins, whiskeys, vodkas, and cordials from non-GMO organic ingredients in downtown Frederick. Named the best vodka distillery in the country by USA Today, best gin in the world at the International Spirits Competition, and double gold at the World Spirits Competition for bourbon, rye, and gin. Open now for tours, tastings, and classes. Come sample the most awarded distillery in Frederick today. All right, Mads, you were at that time the director of marketing, right? Yes. How much of all that was planned? All what? All the buzz? Yeah. So did did you have, uh, was it all planned out like we're going to make this happen or was it, uh, this will probably be cool, Um, holy crap, let's react and make this as big as possible? I would not say that we anticipated 
how large it was. I think Dave and I just went and we're, we, we took this meeting with, you know, we, I think we called Diablo or our, our brewer at the time yep. made contact with Diablo and we went to the meeting, you know, that was just how it started. And then they were sort of just as edgy as we were, but in diff- slightly different ways. And the unicorn farts donut was like something you couldn't pass up. I mean, it was, it was rainbow. I don't think there's ha- original had glitter on it. No. Um, but I remember Dave taking the a few of the donuts back and um, you sat down with the brewers and you tried to figure out what the flavors of Fruity Pebbles was. Yeah. So you were eating cereal out of a bowl with milk. No, I, I remember at the very last minute was when we added the edible glitter. In the, we were in a meeting and decided, you know, let's, can we give this, is this even possible? Which is one amazing thing about Duclaw. It rarely you know, when you're coming up with ideas, which, you know, anyone within the company can originate an idea that comes to life here. It's another beauty about the culture of Duclaw, but, um, rarely do you get a no. It's more of a, let's figure out how we can do that. Or let me, let me take a look and see if we can make that happen. Um, and edible glitter was one of those things. And from there, I think we knew that was a hook. Who, whose idea specifically was the glitter? I forget. I'm not even sure. So I know it came from Mark, and I don't know if it was Rachel. So uh, uh, Bradley, she does. Uh, she works in our marketing here, and it could have been her idea, but even for a lot of our stuff, you can't remember who because it usually is three or four people standing around. Somebody says something, somebody reacts and goes yeah. on. But I think where it really kicked off was the photo shoot, the bathtub photo shoot. Oh, yeah, that was, I mean, year one, we didn't have enough beer for year one. I mean, the demand within year one was was a lot, and we hadn't planned, we hadn't planned for how big it would grow. And then year, and my background is in media relations and earned media, so I kind of knew how to tell the story and, and get it into the hands of the right people, which I think helped a lot. Um, but then year two, the challenge was like, how do we, how do we keep this interesting? Like, what, how do we make this new again? And um, Lizzo had posted a photo of, of herself in a bathtub full of Skittles. And I remember being at work and I was looking at Instagram and seeing this photo and I had this like light bulb moment. And, um, you know, you have, it's like the five second rule. You, you, have to, you have to take an action within five seconds or all your fears are going to come right into your <laughs> yeah. brain. And um, I remember running over to Rachel and, and Tyler on the marketing team and saying like, what do you guys think of this? I think we could do this with, with Fruity Pebbles. And um, they said yes. And so I, I, I talked to Dave. I don't think Dave, I don't think you a lot of people didn't quite understand yeah, what who was happening. Was. <laughs> y- yeah, yeah. Um, and I I was like, well, I think we can pull this off with minimal time and cost. And um, I think we spent $500. On, well, I first started by calling all these boutique hotels to see if I could borrow a fancy bathtub to put a brewer in um, and fill it with fruity pebbles. And, you know, I I got turned down by every single one. And then I started calling theaters and real estate companies to see if I could uh, borrow a bathtub prop of some sort. Um, Also was turned down by every single one. And then I thought to myself, there's a Home Depot down the street. I bet I could just buy a bathtub. How much does a bathtub cost? (laughs) 
and I went and I found a bathtub for $300 and we we rented I think we rented like a truck or somehow we got it um, and we placed it in Graffiti Alley which is this um, lovely little spot in in Baltimore City where you can um, you know, you can, you can do graffiti and you don't need to sign up to use the space. You can use it for photo shoots. And we placed, um, Roz, the owner of Diablo Donuts and, um, our brewer at the time in the bathtub full of fruity pebbles. And we took, took photo photos of it. And that's what made it interesting in year two. I think that was probably serendipitous that everyone turned you down, which I'm kind of surprised that everyone turned you down. Cause everyone seems to want to latch on to craft beer in some sort. You would, I would have. I would think that I can understand maybe, you know, the four seasons, not seeing the vision, (laughs) not seeing the vision of of fruity pebbles (laughs) in your bathtub. But I don't, I don't know that those photos would have been as good had they been in a bathroom in a regular bathtub. I think you're right. As opposed to set up in an alley with just rough around the edges you know we're rough around the edges and lizzo is this like glory glorious beautiful being and we're putting like bearded men in a (laughs) a tattoos (laughs) all over in a a bathtub so and they were sports (laughs) they were it was 40 degrees that morning i remember how um how many boxes of fruity pebbles did that require 32 I don't know how I remember that. I was just, that was going to be my follow-up question. How do you possibly remember that? I think because I had to order them. So you even went <laughs> with with real Fruity Pebbles, not generic store brand. I wish I could say I knew there were generic store brand Fruity Pebbles, <laughs> but now I know. I'm, I'm pretty sure there are. And I just assumed. I could be wrong then. I mean, I would just, like every other cereal seems to have only the finest ingredients here at Duke right. <laughs> no half-assing it <laughs> <laughs> um but those pictures were amazing they were awesome oh, and but what but there was already the demand for the second release of it really so that i mean that probably helped it won you a really cool trophy yeah that, um, that's that true um yeah, it was strange because I think we had tried to make more unicorn farts in the first year um, to we try did. to meet some of the demand, and then but then we needed to issue the pre-orders for the second year, you know, just a few months after that because we knew we wanted to prepare, have a little bit of a longer lead time. So it was like we had to generate interest again pretty soon after. Yeah, because if you look like a sour before that, it might have been two batches two turns of our system and then unicorn in the first year was six or seven which was pretty incredible then unicorn in the second year was uh 17 times three or whatever that is that's complicated yeah it got it got to be crazy um and so the more volume the more planning um just even sourcing all the the fruit that you got to put into it um and making sure that's here in enough time, especially during COVID, where everything went from a one-week lead time to a six-week lead time. Yeah. Um, it was definitely challenging. And then getting it out there and letting people know and keeping it fresh. Because, you know, in our industry is they love it until they hate it. Yeah. yeah. So this was this was the third year for it, right? Or the third release? Or was this the... This year was the, this year was the fourth, right? I know. This year was the third. The third. Okay. Yeah, because I, I have no concept of time anymore. <laughs> Um, but that, that first release of it, it had 
at least in Maryland, it was on every like every news outlet picked it up. Was it like that outside of Maryland too, or was that that huge buzz mainly yeah. centered around Maryland? Yeah, we um, we had plans with the Today Show, and and I drove to the Today Show to deliver the beer, and then um, the Trump trials overtook the Today Show. That cut. whole that whole week they didn't have any programming so it's a lot trump i know it it was a good it was a good um yeah i mean we got we were in cosmo and delish and so it was it was pretty widespread and i think it's one of those beers that is useful to the craft beer industry because more than just craft beer drinkers are going to have interest so we wanted to you know, we, we, we see this as part of our values is to invite everyone into craft. And so that was in alignment for us. Yeah. It, I guess I don't think it was quite polarizing, but I feel like it did get a lot of backlash from the staunch beer nerds. Sure. Um, but my stance has always been, and I mean, it came out back when we actually, we still had the magazine too. And I had wrote an editorial about like, why can't beer just be fun? Like yeah. it, it, we face that. Like even if you look back in ninety six, ninety seven, it was this is the way everything was moving, and then people would complain. Some people would, and then it's been that way for twenty five years. Every time there's a movement in a different direction, someone's like, "Well, it's different than what I'm used to," and but that's craft beer. It's it's been evolving since it came about. In fact, we actually even had some conversations with uh brewers that were in here it was is where they were not wanting to go in a certain direction and it's like but you were we were the people that were telling the people that drank Budweiser this is the way it's at and now you start to sound like them and that's the the thing and the tough challenge in craft is you have to decide kind of where those tastes are going what's evolving what comes out and so but yeah very polarizing because anything that becomes popular gets attacked because I, I even remember, like, the first time I tried it, um, my daughters, who I guess at that time were, like, eight and three, thought it was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> like, could not stop laughing. And then, like, every time I went to drink a beer, they were asking me why I didn't, I wasn't drinking the Tooting Unicorn beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the more we can help people be childlike and have that sense of fun and wonder you know craft be cherished rules be damned the beauty of craft beer is if you can make these solid classics and then have fun with the rest i think that's that's a win for everyone just push the boundaries just like you mentioned classes before that beer was the same way as how do you get over 20 percent alcohol naturally fermented um and that how do you do it and then we went and did it and then we actually messed up a little bit and so it needed more time. So then our theory was we're going to tell everyone we did it, but you can't have it. And we did that for a while until we started releasing it at the Oktoberfest, one keg at a time. And then you just kind of generate that and make people like love it. That's the whole point. You've got to get their attention and then can, you know, and, and, and get them to understand it. So in, in that time frame of Unicorn Farts coming out, it also seemed like there was also much more of a heavy emphasis on marketing. And so do you think that also helped contribute to 
the renaissance i'll call it the duclaw's renaissance ushering into i mean it's almost kind of like a phase three of you yeah. i mean maybe there are more but yeah. it seems like maybe how, okay, actually how many phases of duclaw would you oh say there were then At there's least. probably more than three but yeah, your like first one we had the restaurants um then we launched into 22 ounce bottles and then I'd say at least three or four where all of a sudden things change. But the marketing, yeah, we got uh, Mads and the whole group did a, a just a really good job of getting to the right people in, in the right way, taking advantage of the product that we had out there and then getting that attention and doing it in the right way, just like even the photo shoot, but just other things we had around it just kept feeding into that attention and was able to cut through the clutter that's out there in today's world. and. Um, the social media, the, you know, just even the photos and the shoots and the things you come up with just to, to be out there and let people know. Yeah, I remember coming in and um, I had worked with Duclaw maybe like seven, eight years ago when I was at, worked for a marketing firm briefly and then um, had the opportunity to come and join the team. And it was like, it was like every all the elements as a marketer i came in and i was able to see sort of all the elements were there you know it was like this amazing crew of people heads down working really hard to try to do the right thing and make good beer and the culture was so great and i discovered that new branding had been developed but not executed so this new logo this cleaner more modern more accessible look was our it already existed um and it just needed someone to sort of press go um and that's really when i think like the visual brandings started to change when we rolled that out and it took a while to get it fully rolled out but i think that also helped with um more people trying duclaw more the new drinkers starting to try duclaw is um has the sales volume grown of unicorn farts every year or so it's still <laughs> yes. i mean it, it's it it hasn't um it hasn't become boring yet not, to, not yet each year you wonder like will yeah. next year um kind of what did it peak this year uh and because once people have it enough it's like well i've done i've been there i've done that yeah. um so you always wonder it's the case, but just even like with us is even though we look at unicorn farts, like with our lineup next year, you're looking at these next beers you're going, people always ask like, what's your favorite? And it's typically whatever we're packaging right now is like, <laughs> yeah, I like this because this is new too. exact same craft beer guy. I'll sit there and say, yeah, I had that one. Oh, I like this one because it's new, it's different and you're trying it. So we wonder every year, has it just maxed out? Um. So you talked about keeping it fresh. So this year, I guess, involving Squatty Potty was the right the strategy for, which was cool because it afforded me the opportunity f- to randomly have someone from Squatty Potty on my <laughs> podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, we're going to do it again this year. It's called the Give a Crap Challenge. And it'll be separate from Unicorn Farts this year. It, it grew enough and it got enough interest where it's going to live on its own so it so i guess unicorn farts sort of originated that partnership and now it can sort of fly from the nest um, but that was a partnership or is a partnership with colon cancer foundation squatty potty and duclaw so would 
would just be like uh will there be a different beer named that or it'll just be like ant how how it'll be a it'll be a different beer i think it'll be a fruited wheat i think blueberry and and, uh, maybe it'll be blue we're still sort of in the development phase got enough to where we felt we could kind of do its own beer and changing it up too yeah Uh, part of it is well we've done this so now let's see if we can bring something else out to kind of grow that because if you've done it once the question would be is why would you do this to get unicorn again you've already done that so let's bring out something new for it so will it be just like the graham cracker unicorn farts where the only way to get it will be if you do or no, what? the we we had to do it that way through an e-commerce platform because um, it wasn't being sold at a retail level. But we had um, a lot of inbound interest from retailers and distributors last year, from my understanding. So this year we are planning to to offer it to be sold in retailers, which will be very useful. And you know we're trying to raise awareness and funding for Colon Cancer Foundation. Okay. Um, and so I think it'll even we'll be able be able to even support the cause even more cool yeah because i think that there's probably a lot of people disappointed that they weren't able to try that beer yeah but it also probably added to help and make it more successful because of the um do you have to get going i have to get going i'm sorry thanks so much for for including me see you mads all right so now we'll kind of rewind a little bit because I wanted to make sure we got to there so we could. <laughs> so so Mad Mads hadn't driven out here for absolutely no reason <laughs> before because if we covered all of your extensive history, we wouldn't have made it to this point uh, yet. Um, so at the height of so let's rewind back to we'll call it phase one <laughs> when when you had the restaurants. Um, w- there were two or were there three at the height we had four four okay, that was but way then up. we we um the one we had opened in baltimore uh we basically got in a big dispute with the landlord and, and walked away from that one so we had three for the that most seems part seems to be a very big cause of restaurants to close yeah we um the other thing is i think our our food style back then just wasn't well suited for a kind of downtown baltimore location we were more of a suburban type restaurant um and you we couldn't run two different concepts that was a kind of a mistake on my part is that you you just whatever worked out say in in anne arundel county or prince george's county or harford county wasn't working in baltimore plus they didn't really want a bar there that was the other problem okay and so we were trying to we wanted to be more of a bar they wanted more of a restaurant and that caused a lot of conflicts with all the the very high-end financial uh clients above us we were in a building with like morgan (laughs) stanley and everything else and they they were mad so 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 that was why you weren't uh probably the root of the argument with the yes 100 percent. they had a little bit more uh (laughs) a lot more sway with the (laughs) yeah um and then the other there was one at the and fells point that was the one that was that was that was okay that's the only one i ever went to we had a rundle mills mall uh we had Bowie town center and then we had rundles in bel-air now we did have um, there 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 was up until right before COVID there was a, a, a airport location, but pretty much any location from almost any restaurant or any entity in the airport 
isn't run by the company that has it. You license the name out because you have all kinds of FAA regulations. So you can't even, you have to pass all kinds of background checks. So okay. So these there's operators just run that. companies that specialize in yep, yep. running. So the Dunkin' airport. Donuts, they run Dunkin' Donuts, Starbucks, and okay. so on. That's a interesting model, I guess. And we did that because, and it was pre-security, which isn't always the greatest for sales, but it was really good name recognition. Um, and so we were like, hey, this is a good idea. If we're going to be selling beer and in other spots, people, a lot of traveling in and out. Yeah. It made us look a lot bigger than we were. So. <laughs> With the, what, fake it till you make it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. So at one point, um, had you sold, you sold the restaurants or did you close them? So we were selling them off okay. basically, uh, so even though I started this and started in the restaurant side, it was really for the beer. And then while when the production brewery, the facility we're in now and our brands were growing, it was, and we were still a small company. I mean, we're 30 people. So right now, back then we were in smaller. And so you were running yourself ragged in growing this uh, brand and then also trying to run the restaurants. And then the restaurants just lost the appeal. And so we were like, okay, let's, Let's divest from that and let's go into the beer side, which is really where all the passion is. And um, so we kind of got rid of the time over time because you have leases and all that yeah. stuff. So you got them out and um, uh, allow one, two, we were hard pressed because we were seen as competitors too. So a lot of restaurants wouldn't carry our product because you're my competitor down the street. Oh, okay. Uh, that and, makes and it's changed now with tap rooms. People don't see that, but yeah, we you know that that transition time had a lot of friction. Yeah, because I mean, especially a local one, like you, it, it would maybe even now still be looked yeah. at that way because to some degree, yeah. yeah like if you're at uh, like some kind of like pub food mm-hmm. type restaurant, you, and you like here have this Duclaw. <laughs> like, yeah. Hey, it's not a restaurant too. Like yeah. maybe we'll just go there and get it direct from the. But it, you would also, I think you said earlier that if the laws in Maryland had been different at the time, you wouldn't even have done the, the restaurants. Food. Yeah, the um, we had to do the food and you had to be very competitive food wise. But you, you know, we did a beer release a month, um, pretty much from 2000 till the time we closed the restaurants. And, you know, some were repeat beers, but you were really in it for the beer side. And um, that's kind of where the passion is. And the, and that's where you go to a beer festival, they love you. You know, your burger is overcooked. You're the worst guy in the world. So <laughs> it um, it it just has so much more allure and that's why you did it. And I would have, I we still want to do a tap room here. Part of our challenges as we look is we've oh, we've always Sorry. been talking about opening. Wrong, a, wrong volume slider. <laughs> talking about opening a tap room. And each time we get into it, there's always something that we have to do. Again, still a small company, so you got to put a new canning line in, or you got to add this equipment. And yeah. there's only so much time and attention. And you're probably at the size too that, like, having your own tap room at least right off the bat, it wouldn't move the needle much. Yeah, it's more... Because, like, the distribution heaviness of your business, the way it's always been, like, it would probably take a little bit of time to build the tap room up to something that would be a noticeable... Yeah, we would look at the tap room not as much for selling pints and getting revenue that way. You look at the tap room for uh, 
kind of prototyping, looking at beers, okay. getting right in front of your customers again, listening to them, because you have to work these up. Like one of our biggest challenges, if we launch, um, so like all these beers that we're, we have here today, they're all been brewed before. But um, when we did, I like the Sarami Mimosa that we just recently launched. We've never brewed that before. We've done test batches, but you're scaling up from a system. So you're trying to hit a mark and you have one shot to do it. It'd be great to have a, a smaller brewery, a brewery, brew house down there where you can perfect the recipe before yeah, you scale up. Yeah, that makes up. sense. And then you have that direct feedback too. Yes. So even like if you put out something that you're kind of, you're, well, you're, you're definitely, you're two layers removed mm-hmm. from the beer drinker. Um, once you put something out, if, yeah. if you're not selling directly to someone in a tap room. And for even for the brewers here, um, being able to do that and talk to your customers and that is the reason why everyone got into this industry. So that would be great to have and, and be able to experience. We still like that side, even having events. Um, the, the challenge is, well, and then COVID again, yeah. like we, we were like, we were two months into the design work for it and then COVID came along and shut everything down so you're like wow thank god i didn't build a tap room because i would have spent all that money and then i got nothing for it um so we uh, we're looking and now we're saying is it good to have it physically here do you want to go somewhere else with it um where it would be better suited for people driving and visiting because we're still a production brewery we want nice big warehouse space and you're in a nice area but it's not you know the it's not like there's five restaurants near us you got to drive a little bit did um did the restaurants effectively serve as that kind of tap room direct feedback Mm -hmm. at that point yeah that's what the one thing i do miss with that is our beer launches we used to cut a little video and we would play just to really let everyone know this new beer is on tap and and you kind of miss that energy and that ability to do that and get that feedback um and so they allowed us to have that connection to the customer and then as soon as that got cut and that was kind of at the time where everything was changing too you were this faceless brewery and not i go down to your tap room and i see you guys yeah um and uh, so all of that combined and you know when you look at it we like even the unicorn came from starting extremely small uh, amount of beer and convincing distributors over a six or nine month period that this is going to work and then now it just rolls and so we are constantly doing that so even for us like we was, we're looking at unicorn we're looking at these beers next year that okay this is where we see everything shifting and going so having the tap room would be great because then you could bounce it off your customers you can get their feedback not just even from what they're telling you but you can because people will, one of the classic things I remember was there was a study group done for Sony where they had Walkman, cassette Walkmans, and there was a yellow version and there was a black version. And everyone said the yellow version was the coolest, but they were given a free Walkman when they walked out the door and everyone chose the standard black version. <laughs> and so you look at what they do rather than 100% what they say. So you look at how they react to the beer, you find things. Like one of the great things with Sours is that it's a lot of people who don't like beer like hoppy beers or stouts like sours so you're bringing a lot more people into the yeah. craft beer world um which like mad said is is one of the main goals for every brewery 
have you considered getting in the seltzers is that we looked uh, we look at everything um the challenge with seltzers is because they're locale um in that means no sugar so you have to bring flavor in without being bringing sugar in um at least post fermentation so a lot of times that means having uh extracts into that and though we don't see anything wrong with extracts it's then i'm I can't be different than someone else. And if I can't offer a product that I can differentiate or make it better, everyone look at it, then why would you drink my seltzer over White Claw? It's just because I'm local. Yeah. And it's probably going to be more expensive. Yeah. Actually, it's almost definitely going to be more expensive. And we took a long look. We actually even created a brand separate from Dude Claw because we said, well, we, you don't want people to think it's beer, so it can't say Dude Claw because they'll just think it's beer. And like you have 10 seconds, someone looking on the shelf they want to pick your brand up yeah and you have to really communicate well but in the end we looked and said you know we just can't figure out how to make it differently and how we see that market is there's a lot of people and it'll pare down to two or three of the big boys just like the hard lemonade market did it seems like uh i I was reading that that's kind of um that it's dying off already anyway like the the seltzer trend didn't have the staying power that everyone thought it did it was more of like a yeah. sharp rise but now it's gradually like sales have tapered off quite a bit yeah and it's consolidating um and you definitely are going to have local dominant players but like i can even see it friends that i know that were into drinking seltzer you can see them phase out because it just doesn't have the variety that craft beer does yeah um and once you've had it enough you're like ah it's just not as flavorful but it was great for people who wanted 90 calories drinks but have some flavor um i mean it's, i still think it's beneficial for breweries that have tap rooms mm-hmm. to make seltzers because yes. it gives the non-beer drinker who's with their beer drinker friends something to drink when they're in the tap room but um and from what i understand they're not like they're not selling as well in stores as they were at one time no that's definitely it's dying down uh, but usually it's the edge guys so like, the white claws and those things still might be holding strong yeah. but the edge guys are the ones dying off because they just never got picked up what um what are you most proud of in the your 25 du- years of duclaw uh I'd say it's really the, the team. So we have uh, the group of people um, that are here, that have been here. I have a couple of employees that have been with me for, well, one for 25 years and one for almost 25 years, um, which is really sad because when they started working for me, they were 16, 17, 20 years <laughs> old. Um, but uh, not only the ones that are here now, but even the ones in the past, is people have come in, like Mads had said, is we try not to say no, and the people that kind of feed into it, um, and uh, just having that group, and, and even some, like Ty, as you mentioned earlier, who was a sales rep here, who has now moved on, and it's just that kind of kind of pride that you had that group of people um with you and then the ones that have been here forever it's that's the thing is where it is because that's where the success is and they're kind of taking over and they embody kind of how we kind of look at ourselves like now it used to be back in the day every beer i made the decision on i did everything you know this is what we're going to launch this is how we're going to do it and now they're just you know they're, they're running with it which is great to see um 
And I guess um, the other thing I'd say that we really look at, if you look at poignant moments, like the Maryland Oktoberfests, those things were, I think, just kind of embody us. We were small compared to everyone else, but we came, we actually made beer specifically for the Oktoberfest or launched at the time of Oktoberfest. We had 14 different beers on tap most of the time. Where were those held at? Uh, Timonium State Fairgrounds. That's right. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I ever went to one of those because I always went to just the one in Frederick. Yeah. Frederick has a fairly large October. And we fest. had so many different styles. We had different boards, and then eventually we realized we need to be able to change quicker. We need to be able to communicate better. So we actually designed. I had on staff was a programmer, and we actually built an Xbox game program that had our beer boards up and made the change and programmed in so for us it wasn't even just the beer we made and we obviously had colossus then um and we but we created video releases for the beers so when people came on it was always a show because you realize you need an emotional connection and so we were doing anything and everything to just get people to be like they're cool and that, uh, that is a good way to put it because that, that that is the perfect description of what i remember of Duclaw at Springfest. Yeah. Like they, you were up in that top corner near the entrance to the stadium and it was a show up there because oh. you had every hour you had a separate like a different beer that was tapping for that hour mm-hmm. and it was Colossus was in the final hour and like <laughs> yeah. it was just this big it, uh, it was a show yeah, being put on. Yeah, that crowd and like it got even to the point in Colossus became the worst kept secret that we're like it's releasing at one o'clock the special beer so then, like, the, the thing that was the best was the last year we were there, we let everyone know 1 o'clock is the secret beer, and the video came on, and everyone's expecting classes, and there's hundreds of people in front of our little trailer, and they're all chanting and screaming, and then we had our I was there. our first non-alcoholic <laughs> release, and everyone just turned and started cursing at us and so on but then it was really <laughs> colossus yeah and it came in and we realized it was like we're, we just want to play with your emotions we want to get you excited so the way to get you excited is to get you thinking it's coming then to disappoint you then to kind of bring it back and it was just the whole team that amount of planning on that too we had three different charts of how beers were going to be rotated in and out so that little small trailer you know it held the beer we had to rotate out how many pours how long we think it would be on there was a lot of planning we would actually in those Oktoberfests that were in in october late september we would actually start planning in february we'd have video shoots in like march april may things were cut tight and uh just so when everyone walked away they were like that was cool so so i think any uh, especially newer companies would probably consider 2020 is just the yeah. hardest year to operate a business. Mm-hmm. So at that point, you'd been business 24 years. Duclaw had been through several or at least one large up and down yeah. cycle. How how did 2020 compare to any of your previous times? And how did that prepare you to make it through 2020 so um one of the biggest things we had our downturn was all the small tap rooms all this stuff going in and we actually you didn't have brewers that were like well i just wish we just were just a tap room we didn't have to deal with a larger facility and one of the things we said is well the problem is in your area if something happens there you're just not 
diversified, if you want to call it that. You, you, you really rely on just that specific area. So if you're in a mall and that mall has a downturn, you're going with it. So 2020 kind of was a culmination of that. When that did come along, um, we were in uh, 23, 24 states. So some states didn't really shut down. So volume didn't change there. Um, we didn't have a tap room. So when that shut down, that really didn't affect us. Yeah. Um, and we we consider ourselves lucky. We didn't have too much of a disruption. There was definitely um, disruption with material, getting here, getting beer out, um, staffing. If somebody was sick one day, all of a sudden you're not coming in, they got to get tested. Now you're down two staff members for a week or two. Um, but it didn't affect us that badly and we realized that you know now even though you're craft and you love the creativity you're still a business so diversity of where your money comes from uh is there and what you really looked at was because you didn't have to look people in the face and say look i can't afford to employ you anymore you know there's only like i said there's 20 so 25 30 of us total and besides a one or two week period right at the beginning where everyone kind of went home because we didn't know what was going on, uh, we kept everyone employed and kept them going and so on. And, and that was that was a thing. So it's great in being small, but when your whole business relies on a tap room and that tap room goes out, you know, I felt for it. And I was frustrated even with the shutdowns with restaurant people because I, I get the whole concept, but it's hard. How, to, how happy were you that you had already closed your restaurants? Uh, I say it all the time. <laughs> I was like, I was like, we said it earlier. It's like, work hard to get in luck's way. We get very lucky and we consider ourselves very lucky. But yes, I was ecstatic because I just don't know what you would have done. Like even the economic hit, but just, just to know that people are saying, Hey, I rely on this income. And even though you didn't do anything, they're suffering and there's nothing you can do. Um, I actually, even for, because we have a lot of customers that buy our beer that run restaurants and that was just frustrating as anything to just hear, you know, like, well, I, I just don't know if I'll have a business when I open and a lot of our customers aren't back. And um, it just, that was a, a tough thing. So yes, very glad I'm done, done with those. <laughs> um, but you, you actually grew production over mm -hmm. the last year, didn't you? Yeah, we've been since uh, since 2019. Yeah, we've had double digit, easy double digit growth for the last three years. And then, so that that's probably another uh, huge blessing over the past year of being just distribution, uh, because so many breweries saw an increase in production but minimal gains in profitability yeah. because they shifted so much of their taproom money to distribution. Oh, yeah. So you just, all your charts are pointing upwards. Yeah, and that's, <laughs> that's too, the other good thing about having, um, being in the number of states is we see a lot. So like our sales reps, what I love about them is it's not just out there pushing our beer, but they're collecting beers they're trying from all over and shipping them back. And so it's letting you know what trends are taking place they're and very crafty people. And this is, I tried this, this was really good. You guys got to try this and, and, um, between technology, Slack and so on, just the communication that goes on. Do you, do you do regional only releases or is it when you release something, it's crossed? I know some, some yeah. things were 
local only. Yeah, usually um, it's that. But for the most part, it's if it if it leaves the Baltimore Maryland area, it's going to the whole footprint. It can, it can. Some don't want it. Okay. Like there's just some areas where we're doing it, and it might only go, you know, south for whatever reason. Uh, but yeah, the only releases where if it's going to be regional, it'll be Maryland, maybe Southern PA and, and, and Northern Virginia. But um, and they're usually the small batches. Like so we're doing a single turn or two turns or collaborations. Um, there are some times where we will do collaborations with uh, retailers in different states. Um, and, but you're talking like ex- especially small and, and usually we have to take a brand that we have or we're doing and we're, we're doing something different with it in the process. How many states are you in now? I think we're in 23. Um, we're getting, we just getting ready to launch Texas, Okay, which is, was incredible for us because it was never part of our plan. They reached out and it was through unicorn farts that you get enough attention. Chatters heard about it and then distributors start digging through all the brands. And the one thing that we like hearing and it was great to hear is it's not just this, but the consistency of the schedule, the stuff you offer, the planning and the engineering of it, then that's kind of what draws them into it. Is um is Sweet Baby Jesus still the number one selling beer? Well, or is it- so how we look at it, and of course we're going to obviously manipulate in our favor, uh, <laughs> the Sour Me series, so that would include Unicorn, but even if you take okay. Unicorn out, if you look at the Sour Me by, by its own series, a new beer every eight weeks, it is actually the number four sour in the nation as far as sales go across like grocery store chains with Nielsen data and so on. So I would consider that one larger than Sweet Baby, but any one singular brand, Sweet Baby, is still 35% sales. So people still love it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it goes to France and Canada, and we do export a little bit here and there. Um, And it's it's, uh, just a consistent kind of just chug along. This, obviously, right now in the middle of summer, it's not its season, uh, but it goes starts to really ramp up and get crazy through December. Do you still crack open sweet gravy Jesus to enjoy, or are you sick of it at this point? I'm used to it. So I drink, <laughs> um, for the most part, as much as I can, you're trying everything that comes off the line. Yeah. So, and we're typically packaging sweet baby one to two days a week. So yeah, I have a, at least some, you'd be at two sips or a whole bottle, yeah. um, at least one time a week. Okay. So, but you're, um, so it's just always being brewed always at, still at this point always yep um and it's getting ready to go back into cans we had to we were in cans we had to switch back to bottles because of this national can shortage yeah. and here in the next few months we'll be back into cans and um but yeah you try you try everything that comes off the line uh as much as you can only because you know every time that you brew it there's always a chance something might be different and you just like to know it. Now it's difficult because like, for example, I was off site yesterday, work uh, meetings and so on. So we did euphoria actually yesterday, which is coming out. So I didn't get to try it off the line that day. I'll try it today. And, uh, but yeah, but you're used to it. So I think it was right around the time that you closed the restaurants that the, the brewery also, I think I remember reading a quote in an article from you that nothing was off the table and you were also considering selling the brewery. Am I remembering that correctly or was that? Yeah, we, we actually been looking a couple of years before uh, because a lot of smaller growing breweries growing up were then being purchased um, 
and uh, being either rolled into other breweries or so on. And the key thing, and I hate saying this, but the key thing is, it's like a, right now I'm, I'm 51. And so you have to start looking to say, hey, if, if, if I want to transition out, and eventually you've got maybe nine years left or so on, is that you have to start that plan. Yeah. And, ha- and, you know, when I started, you never thought about it. So you started thinking about it. Um, so we were in the, we had always been doing it for about two years beforehand, just looking because some breweries, like for example, um, you had uh, victory and, uh, um, uh, cigar city and so on. You had a lot of high profile sales. So we were saying, Hey, maybe this is the time. And then, yeah, everything was changing. And then we looked at it and our initial thought was you'd bring in a minority partner and then they would kind of grow or as it would go through that way. Um, and we took a long look and then we decided that it wasn't it wasn't the right time because we weren't like we weren't an attractive company at that time Uh, we we still had faith in ourselves and we knew that here's the direction we wanted to go we had to get through all that so at that time it wasn't as much of like financial struggle as more of future planning or was it also it fi- w- a financial struggle for Duclaw Brewing. Well, so the, so if you look at it, we were growing. So then, like, for example, we um, you w- need to expand your canning line. Yeah. That's going to be X number of thousand dollars, five hundred thousand, million so not dollars. That struggle may not have been uh, yeah. cash constrained. Yeah, that. So. And how do you go about it? Either you're going to borrow money, so that's it's going to put a fifty-year-old guy, whatever, on the yeah. hook as you go through this, <laughs> and you're saying, okay, how long am I going to want to keep in there and and transfer out? Then um, we also felt that with these breweries being purchased up, they're all coming together, so all their costs are going to drop. And then they have a competitive advantage because if things get tough, they can lower price much easier than we could. Yeah. And again, you're still a business. Um, and at the same time, if you wanted to open up a tap room, you, this, you saw a lot of money that you needed to go do all this stuff. And, um, you know, you don't have you don't have those cash reserves uh, like those companies do. And uh, you were trying to also just plan like hey this is going to take years and then that was in the works and then it wasn't um we we started to stumble um things started to change and we were fighting and then we we had that article or went out because we were saying either we're going to find someone to come in and we're going to do everything to find them so we might as well market that that way or we're going to walk away and we did that for about six months after that nine months and then we just said "Eh, we have confidence in ourselves. nothing is working out we don't have the right partner um, because you need someone that understands the brewing world. So you don't want someone coming in and saying, we're going to make these changes. And you're like, no, I see craft going this way. And if you can't get that done right, then there's, yeah. it's not going to work. Yeah. If it's just a private investment, private capital or something, it's yeah. not necessarily going to help steer there. They may not be willing to steer in the direction for, for where it really needs to go. Yeah, let's just even look at unicorn farts and even the give a crap campaign when that first came out, there was a lot of like do we want to have a the word crap? And you know, and and people will shy away and you've got to decide if you want to do it or not and and I am the only owner. So it's it's a lot easier and if you're going to start to share that, you're going to want to make sure they have the same vision or yeah. things are going to work out. Uh, and, uh, and so I assume though, 
looking back, you feel like you made the right decision at this point. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because we were looking like we were able to do a canning line for a lot cheaper than we wanted to do it. And we're constantly looking to expand that canning line. But it seems like something comes up every time. COVID, can shortage. Yeah. We thought we had to roll all the way back to bottles. Um, and yeah, so now you're in a, a position to where you, you know, we're seeing our sales are where we want it to be. We see next year is a is a really good and fun year. We have we think we have a lot of good stuff coming out, um, and we even there's even the thinking we have here is we still think there's good stuff that's going to come out we don't even know about because we haven't looked at it yet. And somebody comes up with an idea and we're like, let's run. Um, do you have any kind of program for uh, your employees to pitch ideas, or is it more of a just loose? people have the freedom to just pitch ideas they have the freedom so we do have our planning meetings and we brought them in and we'll go through and there's renditions um but we use for example mentioned we use slack so we have um new name slack channel and people throw ideas into that that everyone can kind of see um and we have brewers down there that come with ideas like i'll be tasting two beers today from from one of my brewers that he did his own pilot batch at his house that he wants to try us to try um that's the fun part of my job and that's where you see it is usually the one that's like okay this makes sense let's go um and so we pitch ideas and even some collaborations we have coming up which i don't know if we want to talk about them but there was an idea that everyone was like i don't think we'd go for it and then you hear it and you're like, oh, I think that's kind of cool. And yeah, we're going to piss people off. So but what is it? I, I, don't, I don't think I'm allowed to talk oh. about it. You're the, uh, you, you're the boss. Yeah, oh, you can yes. talk about whatever yeah. you want. But Mads was here. She'd tell me if it was okay or Rachel. Uh, but um, <laughs> Well, uh, they're probably going to tell you no. You yeah, can't. probably. So, but that's where, you know, we see it in... Just whisper it. No one's li- actually no one listens oh, to this. No. It's just you oh, and I. No. Oh, no. They'll be on me. I get yelled at all the time. <laughs> Um, where do you see Duclaw going now? What What does the future hold for Duclaw? So I think it's kind of a lot like the past. Like if you look at um, how the craft beer industry is, it goes through its cycles. Um, but we do see like just that constant creation of the product and moving on um, and being able to melt. Right now, sours are a, a good product to put out there. Uh, but we're always looking and always looking to change. The one thing I think we've learned from that is there are no golden cows. Like, uh, again, we don't market Sweet Baby one bit. It does its own sales. We go into it. We're very proud of that beer. But we've always said is we want to be the people that kill it off. You want to find something else that goes on. Um, so continuing finding people that kind of have that vision, that want to come on part of that team and, and keep it moving. Um, and... Uh, growth we are expanding into um we have three new states opening later this year uh, starting with texas that weren't on our radar at the beginning of the year we're not great planners that way Um, (laughs) and so but doing things continue doing things like that that kind of gets people's attention and uh we think we're well suited uh, as far as equipment like one of the big challenges from smaller breweries and growing up is getting larger is good equipment does matter uh, it allows you to be flexible it allows you to take advantage of things and quality and consistency and so 
that kind of way going about it and just keeping that ability to understand the consumer and kind of drill right into their brain and get them to want that. Um, and even now, like even with Unicorn, we have plans and because we know that one day it's going to falter, but what do you kind of do next? And we have ideas we think are pretty cool that we know at least a lot of people when we first pitch it to them, they're going to hate it, but we think we're right. So is that, um, has that come from experience and, uh, knowing the industry, like where you just said, you know, unicorn farts is going to be around forever and planning for the next thing. Is that from your experience with sweet baby Jesus? Like when sweet baby Jesus was, was at its peak, mm -hmm. did Duclaw as a company or even just you specifically like think like this isn't going to end. People are going to love this forever. Or at the same time you were yeah. at that time, you were still playing like this isn't going to be, the favorite forever we have to know what's coming next yeah and we were 100 percent that way because okay. we you know we brewed beers in 2000 that we really loved in 2002 we're like ah, it's just kind of lost its luster um but that's craft beer and yeah. that's just people's tastes are going to change we're going to find something new um you know you know, i remember when we put two and a half pounds of hops per barrel into it and people were like that's just way too much and then it became good and then it became only two and a half pounds <laughs> and uh where's the other five <laughs> we uh and then we was we were growing we ran into hop problems and we couldn't find a contract enough hops and then we brought a beer out called hellraiser which was single hopped matueka and it was tropical notes and so on and it was not your traditional west coast style and it got blasted again because of Sweet Baby, but it's like, well, that's not even a good IPA. And then as everyone started liking that, we ran out of our contracts with Matueka, so we missed <laughs> that whole push. But you could just see where people are, you know, they change and in, in their, their profile changes because we as craft brewers create that. We, we bring out new stuff that people never thought of or thought they were going to drink, and they go drink, and then they're like, ah, that old stuff I don't want anymore. Where do you think... Um style and flavor trends are heading towards uh i i think we're gonna see a little bit at least we're hoping we're gonna see a little bit of classicals coming back again because it's that typical rotation you go into high flavor all the blending then you get that pushback and you go back to the the weizen box the, the heavy weizens uh the um ambers and so on and then you get that going for a while and then you get a new rotation into these incredible new flavors um so i had never thought of it as a cycle that way yeah if you look in 98 it was fruited wheats then it went back to some classical styles then it was all ipas then it went back to i just want to brew a uh easy drinking lager then it was fruited ipas and then it went back to the longer now it's sours but it's that same kind of cycle and rotation that you're seeing simply because you, you have so many flavor components you can play with. You're just kind of bouncing yeah. back and forth. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd never looked at it from that standpoint of like it just goes from muted flavors to hot, like not muted, but uh, like, uh, less complicated, yes. uh, less complicated flavor profiles to overly complicated flavor. Yep. And that's us. Like, even as we look at it, we might be a little ahead, but we're into this flavor. And then all of a sudden we're like, you know what? I just really want like euphoria coming out right now. It is a flavored kind of uh, uh, brown ale because it has an almond toffee coffee into it, but it's, it's very um, light and it was built inside the restaurant to be very drinkable, a little bit of flavor, but very crushable. 
it goes with any dish kind of stuff. And then you, you take a sip of that and you're like, I, I miss this. And then you're back into that. And that's regular beer for us too. It's like you go into it. So we as brewers kind of experience it and then you just see how it goes. And then you have that for a while and you're like, oh, you know, that lime flavor of this over here or whatever it might be that comes out. Now, you're always bringing new people into the industry. So like I think the flavored sours take a lot of that. Um, like the mimosa for us, we saw a lot of people that were drinking seltzers go in to go drink that mimosa. I, I think fruited sours are going to maybe like the constant growth in them will mm-hmm. die off. But I think they're going to stay like hazy IPAs yep. where it's just it's always going to be a popular beer because it's the you, you said it earlier. It's the non beer drinkers beer. Yep. And hazy's kind of were before fruited sours. That's what, like, the juicy, hazy IPAs were what people who didn't like beer were kind of attracted towards those. And now just having dessert in a can is open to everyone. Mm -hmm. But along the lines of what you're saying, a lot of people, actually I think almost everyone I've talked to lately, are predicting or seeing huge growth in the sales of light lagers and pilsners. They're definitely coming back. Um, we have a few that we, we look, we're having on next year and going back into there. And, and whether they become large or not, you know, you want to roll into it at least locally. And uh, at the same time, it is that little mix of brewing what you like and just kind of trusting that your palate is going in the direction. And you're just a little earlier than everyone else. Has there ever been a beer that you really wanted to be made and everyone else here was like, no, that, yes. that won't work. Yes. Did you end up making it or Way were you too shut late. down? Way too late. Which- so we, it was years ago, actually, before the uh, the hazy craze really went out, um, we had launched and I was out uh, uh, doing sales um, uh, launches and was having beers and uh, which the best way I can describe it is you came across a beer that had that juicy flavor. It wasn't hazy was just juicy and it was ipa and you're saying i just really like this this is a little different and so on and brought it back and kind of came up with the concept of saying hey i want this juicy we know the type of hops you're using isn't going to be a four or five month beer where it can be on the shelf let's brew smaller batches and just launch it that way and it got shot down for many reasons in there because distributors being the main one is well they don't want a beer that has to be so uh, you know, short on time frame, or you have to do this. And if you're not brewing a lot and you can't pitch it to all the distributors, why are you even doing this? And then it was about a year and a half later, there was the New England hazy juicy craze. <laughs> and you're like, okay, we, we missed our mark. And that was actually in 2016, 17. So that was right at that time where, you know, you're like, yep, you missed your mark. You know, we kind of saw it coming and we didn't do anything. We kind of shot ourselves in the foot. And, uh, and then we, and we learned the lesson from that is, nope, you're going to find a way to put it out. It might not be big, but you're still going to put it out. If, you, if it's not going to work, you at least exhausted your path. Who have been um, your inspiration and role models in the beer industry over the years? Uh, so when I was younger, um, definitely it was Sierra Nevada. Like when you were just starting and before it in fact i think i took a class before i launched they offered some class out there it was long enough ago i can't remember it exactly um and uh harpoon 
that was a, a big one uh, at the time. Like they were edgy and just still young back then. Um, and uh, then I think it was a lot is my your contemporaries, the people that you're kind of working alongside of. Um, you know, uh, Brewers Art and uh, Oliver's here locally. Those two in there, even before we moved in this facility, just loved their beers, loved what they were doing uh, with things and going through there and that kind of inspiration. Um, and I guess the collection of people around there. You were, I guess, in early enough that you just didn't have a, a role model. You had the breweries that you kind of saw, yeah. and then, you, you know, you just kind of kept going. And in some senses, you outpaced them because they were in that distribution, so they were doing this while we were doing whatever beer like Colossus or Hellenwood Devil's Milk and so on that we went into that. I had the opportunity to um, interview Dan Canary, um, the one of the founders of Harpoon. Okay. Um, oh my, I was two, three, three years ago, probably at this point, maybe longer. It was right, right around when they announced purchasing Clown Shoes. Mm-hmm. Which I feel like that brand has kind of died off, or at least they aren't in Maryland anymore. Yeah, you don't, you don't hear the hype as much. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I've seen anything from them in quite some. Now I need to look that up. I wonder I what is even going on with them. Um, but he talked a lot about how Harpoon um, had become an ESOP. Mm-hmm. Had, it was that when you were deciding like the future of Duclaw and where, what you were going to do, was that something you ever considered? Uh, or is it too small? Yeah, we were on the smaller side. And there's a, a just from, and I've limited knowledge of it, but just from knowledge of it, there's a lot of... Uh, problems that can go we have employees in here that you would love just to have owner have ownership in but it'd be more along lines it's those three here you go um but we're so tiny uh, comparatively it's the advantages of doing that for the company just wouldn't kind of materialize yeah. for us so and you kind of need to be at that i don't even know what size that would be because Probably a few hundred, because it's only the larger ones that yeah. have done that. And, and, and yeah, it would be because basically they're taking portion of what they make and they get to buy into it. But if you have fifteen employees, it just doesn't kind of work out in that sense. And you would just go separately and saying this is how we're going to go about it. Um, it's it's a weird thing. Even now, as we're looking, we've kind of stopped looking at the future and saying, I know I've got a couple more years. I got to plan something. Um, and uh but now you know covid came along and you were just head down <laughs> trying to get through that yeah where can i scrounge up aluminum cans yeah that's where it is and and now we're kind of coming out of it and now we're dealing with another growth thing because again we're just so small like even now with the stuff opening up I, we're trying to make sure is, do we have the ability to make this beer in a timely fashion the right way and we will not deviate kind of the schedule the way we like to make it so we're always tweaking how we handle that. Um, the very biggest challenge is distributor pre-orders. Like if you think about it is, I need to know how much beer I need to make. Well, the distributors need to tell me what they're gonna buy. Yeah. And because they're new each and every time, there's no history on that. So you got a challenge there. And they got to get it to me early enough because it takes 30 to 40 days to make beer. Um, does your, I mean, I guess it's still 
pretty young to know. But does your son have aspirations of wanting to be involved in Duclaw, or is he he's uninterested a, in dad's business? He's a freshman in high school, so he's got a ways to go. But even by the time that, you know, in the next seven years, he'd be way too young. But I don't, I don't want him in here. Um, he's too young <laughs> to really be into beer. And at the same time, he's a smart kid. He can go out and do his own thing and have his own life. Um, I wouldn't want him to because then it's going to be either you compared to whatever I did. Yeah. Um, and uh, and at the same time, you want him to find his own his own thing. So because it, it, like the same thing sort of happened with you too because you mm-hmm. you decided not to go into electrical your contract fa- your family's business but to yep. go. Uh, completely different route yeah it was just more interesting and exciting than wiring houses or wiring buildings Uh, easier to pick up women yeah yeah definitely (laughs) definitely in that definitely in that and uh so it it did change in that sense i was lucky because my parents at first did not obviously like the idea neither of my parents really drink uh so and it was different for them in that but then became very supportive even the fact my father took like two months off work to help build the first brewery so oh cool i didn't screw it up too bad (laughs) uh and but um and i would yeah you just want them to go on their own you know and figure out what they really like and if he likes beer that's great um but then my suggestion would be not do it the way is spend years brewing um, and then decide if you want to stay in it. But there was really no one to spend years brewing with back then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least not not too local. Yeah, nothing. Uh, Baltimore I mean, Brewing and yeah. and Clipper City was really it. Fred, Frederick Brewing Company was around then, right? Yeah, they were. But that's a little bit of ways yeah. away. And, but then they were... They were they were up and down back then because they were. Yeah, well, they were always were. They made a lot of bad financial decisions yeah. over the, the yeah. years, which is why it's fine dog there now. Yep, yep. What was your most difficult challenge over the past twenty five years? Um, I think probably one of the biggest mistakes is I wish we would have gone into package selling like bottled and draft beer or a couple years earlier than we did and one of our challenges we were a little late in that first phase of large craft expansion and then you had this next round that we're rolling in with we just kind of missed um some opportunities there um and i wish maryland would have had different laws like the restaurant was it's it's everything everyone says it's a tough business it consumes you um then when social media came along it was even worse because you could be at home and not even working and you get a tweet that says i'm at your restaurant it's taken 35 minutes to get my meal and so you could never be away from work and uh, my wife she's a trooper because it was seven days a week and it could be any time where you're like, oh, we're going out with friends. Oh, I got to go back in because there's a problem with the cooler or there's a problem here. And it seems like if a restaurant opens, it's a huge minority that it doesn't already have an end date. Yeah. There aren't there aren't a lot of restaurants that stand the test of time because people are super fickle and want that next new thing. Yeah. 
And if you look at it, and this is one thing, we look back after it was all done, we're like, wow, we were a restaurant for 20 years. Yeah, because that's what I was going to ask you. How long were they around? And mm. that's at least twice as long as yes. most successful restaurants make yeah. it. And that's why you look and you're in, in, you have the employees here. Is there was a lot of work, a lot of energy that went into it, a lot of things to be done. And you're like, you just can't always give that energy and not just say, I am just spent from it. Even now, even with the tap room, two of my employees that came from the restaurant that are instrumental here are anti-tap room because remember all the, what happens if the bartender doesn't show up? What do we do? In the past, we were the people that would walk in and be that bartender. The average lifespan of a restaurant is four and a half years. Yeah. <laughs> I take it that's why there's all this gray in this yeah. beard. Um, is it's, it's a tough business and, um, especially as an independent restaurant um when you have chains like a little simple, yeah that doesn't count like a yeah, large light uh, franchise chains is very different than but what they get the advantage of is say for example if um jose cuervo wanted to be in the restaurant what they do in a, a chain is they'll go to the person that runs the chain that doesn't have the liquor license that i'll pay to be on the menu so the menus become free but that's illegal for small guys like Duclaw or any other small restaurant out there that's independent to do. So you see all these laws that are meant to protect stuff that really are just helping the larger guys, but hurts the smaller guys. That um, there seems to be a lot of those in the the alcohol business. I know. <laughs> Unfortunately, as I tell people, it's like I'm a libertarian by nature, uh, only because when you came in. I was 22, 23, 24, trying to open up a brewery and realized all the laws that were against you. Like, all the laws are against you. Yeah. I mean, and it's, what, only in the past five years yeah. that really um, the Maryland laws weren't actively hostile exactly. towards breweries. Well, you look at this is in most states, and Maryland's one of them, though, it changed a little bit. When you sign on with the distributor, you can never leave. Yeah. Like you're just not allowed to leave. It's a contract that goes on indefinite. And they can leave, but you can't. And it was mainly meant to protect them from the bigger guys taking it away from them. But we're trapped in this. And so we spend, we're highly regulated uh, in so many things. There's so many things you have to learn that you don't know. And you, it's hard to find out until you stumble into messing it up. And... um you go through it just like for example even we said we're launching in the state of texas it's been four months in registration just to register to go into that state is texas one of the harder states to that do we've it? found texas and west virginia okay um because you remember most of these laws were created after prohibition so when yeah. it came back and they're either protecting people because they still had the idea that alcohol is leads bad, to dancing or really where it came in is the people that got economic benefit codified the laws made yeah. the laws built it around it to protect themselves and it's just annoying like even in up it was years ago that it changed but maybe five or six but in texas if you were under five percent alcohol you were classified as a logger if you're over five percent alcohol you're classified as an ale regardless so you can actually go back and find in the big boys they have special cans that went into texas saying even though this says ale this is a logger <laughs> you know, because of the alcohol or whatever it might be. So a lot of these laws were made by people who don't know alcohol. Well, yeah, they were just whoever was 
donating enough yeah, money exactly. to them that well, even look, could craft a lot to help their piece of the business. Look locally with uh, the COVID things, they allowed restaurants to package to-go alcohol, which was never allowed before because it was going to be so bad and we were going to have all kinds of problems. Well, at least up where I live, that now they've been doing it, can't tell a difference. But they made this law because one thing happened and so on. And each, in the restaurant side, the amount of regular, it's just crazy. So I that's w- the biggest challenge I could I went imagine. to New Orleans in the end of June for the first time and was introduced to drive through daiquiris. That was one of the most amazing things in the world. Yeah. <laughs> I went there when the Ravens went to the Super Bowl and was it was the toughest thing to know I could walk around with an open container. You <laughs> yeah. felt so awkward. Yeah. Like I just couldn't understand it. Um, what, what do you, what is next for Duclaw? So are there, are there definite plans now for a tap room or is that still kind of put on hold until we figure out what the landscape is going to be? Yeah, it's a little bit on hold because you got to say, we've been looking at, maybe we should have an offsite tap room that's more in an area where people like to visit. Um, and that would be, we'd be more well suited than that. Um, and that's the problem now with COVID because of the lockdowns, because of everything else going on, you just didn't put your time to it. Um, we've on the plus side, there's probably going to be a lot of real estate available for that. Yeah. That's how both fortunately and unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so we have that, um, a lot of equipment stuff. We know that, um, as things are going, we're going to need to expand the canning line, um, it allows, and this is kind of the boring side of the industry, but that packaging allows for a lot more flexibility. Um, different can sizes, things you can do that just open up different things for you, uh, cartons, that kind of stuff. Well, thank you so much for your time today you. and an absolute congratulations on 25 years in any business. That's impressive. Oh, thank you. Um, and I'm I'm happy to see all the success that Duclaw is recognizing now because, as I alluded to, like Duclaw was one of the – because I didn't drink for a large portion of my life. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I moved to Maryland um, and, well, actually when I moved to Frederick and Flying Dog helped corrupt me. <laughs> um, but Duclaw was one of the first craft beers that I really drank on a regular basis. So it's it, – I love seeing – uh, Duclaw back in the spotlight and being popular again. Thank you. And we appreciate it. So uh, thank you so much for your time. And uh, thank you everyone for listening. Thanks. Cheers. The Uncapped Podcast is produced by Graham Cullen and me, Chris Sands. Be sure to like us on Facebook. And if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please leave us a review on Google Play or the iTunes Store. A special thanks to Double Motorcycle for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening. Oh my God, that's good.